Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Welcome again to the Hey Salespeople podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Deva Rangarajan. Welcome, Deva. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Deva is the director for the Center for Professional Selling at Ball State University, where he is also a faculty member. I'm thrilled to talk to him because he brings both a practical and an academic perspective. And in addition to that, he has a tremendous amount of international experience. A lot of the work that he does takes him not just to Europe, but into Asia, PAC, and locations across the world. So the topic in general will be customer experience across the entire life cycle, inclusive of leads through renewal and across sales and marketing and customer success. So we got a pretty broad mandate, but I will start with the questions that I I love to start with because it helps us get a chance to know you. The first question is, what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? One of my favorite books, and I think that's something uh, that I always say and tell to my students as well, is Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. Yes, there have been books written after that as well, but I think it still goes back to the fact that if we want to be having customers who become our fans, we need to understand the needs of the customers. So I think it's one of my favorite books that I would recommend no matter what, it's timeless. Yeah, I completely agree. It is timeless. It's so funny how so many books, as you mentioned, that came after it say effectively the same thing. And then the second way we love to get to know our guests is to ask, what's the first thing you ever remember selling? Maybe take us back into your childhood. The first thing I think, whether I was successful in the sale or not is different, but I think my mother keeps telling me about how good I was in terms of spotting from a distance if I wanted a toy, how I would start kind of hinting to her about how I wanted the toy. And as I got closer to it, how I would keep pressuring her for it. And then how I would start throwing tantrums when I realized that I would not be getting it at that point in time. And my mother to this day still states that how I was able to successfully try to maneuver my grandparents into getting me things when I knew that I would not be successful with my mom and dad. Yeah, the grandparents are definitely pushovers. And I think we'll talk about this later on. It's about knowing your segments of customers, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get to the topic of the day. So so I love to dive into customer experience. So since you're consulting and working with so many different people out in industry, what are some of the most pressing and difficult challenges that they're facing with respect to customer experience? I've had a chance to work with many organizations in different sectors. You know what I mean? So from financial banking uh, organizations to pharmaceutical companies to manufacturing companies. And in different organizations, they talk about customer experience in different terms. So if I go into manufacturing industry, they don't necessarily talk about an experience. They talk about providing the right kind of solutions. So whatever I'm going to say right now is needs to be tempered to the fact that depending upon the kind of organization that the people in the podcast are listening to, you'll hear terms like, we need to provide a great solution. We need to make sure that the customers are satisfied. So the key thing is that keeping the customers satisfied is going to be the key challenge for most organizations. And the challenge begins right from the beginning saying, hey, as an organization, do you clearly know what the customers want? And what you see many organizations assume is that they think they know what the customers want, whereas there's a huge difference between what the customers exactly want and what you think the customer wants. So there's a lot of assumption that goes on out there and making it worse is the fact that the people in contact with the customers usually are either your salespeople or your customer service people, or in some cases, your channel partners. 
And if there's no proper forms of communication, if you have a very siloed thinking within your organization, there's no communication uh, lines between your sales, your marketing, your customer service. So the feedback from the customers, it's much harder for it to get through your organization and have that information filtered to the folks who can actually deliver the right kind of solution. Then on top of that, of course, you also need to have the right kind of training and capabilities given the fact that the needs of the customers are constantly changing. So you see that there's a lot of things happening out there that will prevent an organization from truly understanding what the customers want to the point in terms of delivery, having the right kind of capabilities and skills to deliver on it. Now, these things that I'm talking about are mostly restricted to all customer-facing roles. You could also have a failure to deliver on your value to the customers if your back offices are not aligned with what the front office needs as well. A very siloed thinking within an organization where departments don't talk to each other, not too much focus on the right kind of customers and understanding and doing voice of customer exercises. And then, of course, communicating the wrong set of expectations. I was listening last night to a recording of Mark Roberge at Saster 2019. I think he was the ex-CMO or CRO of HubSpot and mm. has gone on to you know, some success in other roles as well. He was talking about customer retention. A lot of companies will just look at it in aggregate and then they'll start to scale up without really looking deeper. And, and he showed this matrix, which I thought was super useful, was to think about your three channels, if you will, inbound, outbound, and partners. And then on the next dimension, the size of the company, SMB, mid-market, and enterprise, and to recognize that each one of those, those intersections of that three-by-three three may have very, very different retention and customer experience needs. And you need to pay attention to each one of those intersections. Absolutely. What he's saying is spot on, right? Because the fact is that you're going to have the needs of an SMB is going to be quite different from the needs of a very big organization, right? So for example, if I want to provide a kind of value-added services on top of my products, a big organization might already have in-house capabilities, whereas an SMB might have a different sort of capabilities. So which means that the expectations and the needs are going to be different depending upon the kind of organization that you're targeting as well. But there's also going to be a difference. You might have a product or a solution that you want to sell, but the impact your product or solution has to create in the customer is going to be different depending upon what industry the customer is in as well. So you can easily see that from the viewpoint of an organization, this kind of interplay between understanding, okay, from a sales perspective, what kind of customers am I talking? Are they small customers? Are they startups? Are they SMBs? So essentially, from a sales perspective, we need to start understanding what are the differences there, because the different needs would mean different set of expectations, would mean different ways of providing the solution, different pricing tactics and everything else. And at the same time, you also need to make sure that there is a knowledge for you to understand that, well, sure, we're talking to organizations in very specific segments, but the needs of a sector is also very important there as well. I'm also curious in, in your own experience, since you have the perspective of you know, the domestic U.S. perspective as well as the international perspective, how different are expectations as you move from country to country? And obviously, each country has its own idiosyncrasies. In today's day and age with technology, with access to information and collecting information, especially in the technology space, we already know that between Europe and the U.S., for example, with in terms of privacy, right? So you have GDPR in Europe, which got to do with how do you track your customers, what kind of information, and how do you can reach out to your customers. That is one thing where things are quite different between the U.S. and in Europe. That's the very obvious one. When you think of Europe, for example, it's not one entity 
I spent 14 years working in Belgium. And you would imagine that Belgium, because of its proximity to, the, to Holland, because of its proximity to France, that all of these companies, you can kind of lump them together as Western Europe. But what you quickly realize is that the way people behave, the way people like to be targeted in terms of messaging, the way people like to be contacted, the way you would negotiate, the way you would kind of stress on certain points, the way you would look at decision-making process of your customers are quite different. So what you need to understand is that there's no one size fits all. Yes, the needs of the industry are converging. That is for sure. But differences in culture, differences in uh, rules and regulations make it that much more challenging for organizations which say, you know what, we were successful in the U.S. We're going to take the same model and try to be successful in Europe. And yes, from the viewpoint of how your product gets used, yes. But from the viewpoint of commercialization and service delivery and customer success, there are still quite some differences between a single uniform market as against a market based on different cultures in Europe. With respect to customer service, for example, right, a lot of folks in the United States are accustomed to, certainly in the B2C world, almost 24-7 service right now. I don't know that the same expectation necessarily exists in the B2B world. Do people have the same service expectations in Europe or in, you know, in India or other places in Asia-Pac? I think here we should be very careful depending upon what it is that we are trying to sell, right? So, for example, if it's an essential thing, make sure that there's no downtime or there has to be constant uptime. You do not want to have data breach. You see what I mean? You do not want to have that kind of stuff. So there are certain industries where you need 24-7, and that is immaterial of which part of the world you are in. But if you're going into other aspects where it's not mission critical, you see that there's a tendency uh, to not necessarily look for 24-7 because what people are also aware of is the fact that asking for 24-7 service would also mean that the price that you have to pay to get that service goes up. From the viewpoint of your supplier, in case the customer wants 24-7, you need to have people manning. Now, this is assuming that you have people manning the, the desks, right? But the cost to serve goes up and that, that somebody has to bear that cost. So what you see is that there is a kind of realization in, in customers as well saying, is this something that's mission critical? Do we need to have 24-7 service? Yes or no. Uh, if it is not mission critical, not having 24-7 is okay. But we need to make sure that during working hours or when it's critical that there is somebody that we can have access to. I wanted to loop back to another thing that you were talking about, which was silos. I would assume with international expansion, there's an even greater risk of not just siloing customer success from sales, from marketing, but you also have this great risk of siloing your international offices, each one of them. Is there experience or advice on how to prevent that from happening? The best we can do is to try and close as many of the silos as possible. For example, at least try to close the silos that are customer facing. So you could say, well, you know what? We need to have better coordination between marketing, sales, depending upon whether you have sales, pre-sales, technical sales, customer service, customer success. If all of these are customer facing roles, are there ways by which we can try and align KPIs? Can we make sure that people have one common KPI? So for example, an organization that I had a chance to work with, what they realized was that it is very hard to bust silos, but at least let's try and get people to work together. And they decided that NPS, the Net Promoter Score, would be a common metric across all the different functions. The idea being that if from a marketing perspective, if we did not understand the needs of the customers, then we are going to come up 
with the wrong kind of configuration of products to help our customers. If sales ended up over-promising than what their organization can deliver, your NPS is going to drop. So at least trying to have NPS as a common metric across departments amongst the customer-facing roles huh, is one way you can try and bust your silos. Of course, if you can also have kind of coordinated meetings between non-customer facing roles and them and make sure you have job rotations and make sure that people spend some time. So people, let's say in supply chain, spend some time with in the frontline organization. Those are ways by which people in different departments can appreciate what the other department is doing. But aligning KPIs in this day and age with lots of mergers and acquisitions and a lot of dynamicism happening in the market is harder. So we are always going to be stuck with silos. I hate to be pessimistic, but I think we can work towards reducing it. But don't forget that your customer is also working in silos. NPS is an interesting way to align the silos. And for those who are not familiar with it, NPS or Net Promoter Score, you'll certainly have experienced it. It's when you get a question that says, on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend XYZ to a friend or a colleague? And the zeros to sixes are considered to be detractors. The sevens and eights are neutrals and the nines and tens are promoters. You take the percentage of promoters and then subtract out the percentage of detractors to get an NPS. So you can range from plus 100 to a minus 100. And that's believed to be a a significant predictor of the success of companies. There's a significant debate that goes on about whether that metric is valid. Do you have your own opinions about the impact of that metric? From a purely academic perspective, looking at a different score is not going to help you. What do I mean by that is if I'm looking at a different score of two, there's a difference between the promoters giving you a seven, the detractors giving you a five, and then it's difference is two, things like that, which is not necessarily making sense. So the one that I personally like from an academic viewpoint is there's something called as the American Customer Satisfaction Index, the ACSI.org. So it's actually a, a company that was started by a couple of professors in Michigan, University of Michigan, the ACSI class for now. And that is more based on kind of robust kind of statistics to understand what drives the satisfaction of customers. Now, let's not forget that the NPS has its roots in typically what we would do in the past to try and look at loyalty of customers. Normally in the past, we would ask three questions, right? That is how satisfied were you with the supplier? How likely were you to repurchase from the supplier? And how likely would you recommend from that supplier? Now you had Bain Consulting, which came in and said, you know what? A customer is not going to recommend anybody else unless they're satisfied themselves or if they are willing to repurchase. So they said we only need one kind of score to make it happen. But if you take a look at how it's put into practice, you will see that you will report an NPS, but you will still need to go back and take a look at a much more detailed analysis of what went wrong. I'm with you that you need to look deeper. In fact, when I have executed NPS, I always ask two questions these days. Uh, my first question is the same thing, zero to 10, are you, how likely are you to recommend? And then the second question I ask is some variation of what was the reason for your answer or what one thing could we do to make you more likely to recommend? And in going back into customer retention, what is critical in B2B is the fact is that who answers that question? How likely will you recommend? Because what you see is that if you see uh, companies that have a very structured marketing organization, why do I say structured? I've heard many things about marketing and B2B organizations all the way from marketing is a black hole, money goes in, nothing comes out. 
marketing spends all the money that sales works so hard to bring in, where marketing is just seen as marcom, eh? marketing communication. Whereas if you see more advanced organizations uh, where they would go in and they would even break down your NPS into what we would call transactional NPS and relational NPS. Transactional NPS is, let's say, for example, you have a customer who has a problem and then needs it fixed. Your organization fixes the problem and then within 24 hours or 48 hours, sends out a questionnaire to the person who reported the problem and then ask, was that transaction satisfactory, yes or not? But at the end of the day, the person who had a problem is going to be quite different from the person who signs off on the long-term relationship. So essentially, a relational thing is something that you do on an annual basis or every two years to make sure if the status of the relationship okay, whereas you will still have plenty of opportunities in between for things to go wrong and can you fix it? I kind of liken it to if you're in a marriage, are you still married? That's a relational NPS. The transaction is there are times that you mess up, that there are many nights that I've slept on the couch, but I still stay married. So relationally, the NPS is strong, but transactionally, I need to improve. I like the metaphor. It makes me think that right in the language of user buyers and economic buyers, I think you have to mind both of them, right? You have to have a good understanding of both your user level NPS as well as your economic buyer NPS. Absolutely. In fact, to the point where now when I talk about how we teach not just students, but also when we go into organizations, we use numbers that Gartner has come up with saying there are 6.8 people in the customer's decision-making unit, for example. This is B2B. Yeah? So if it's 6.8 people that we're talking to, let's not. everybody is going to have a different set of needs. Some people are going to sign off on the deal, and these people are going to be critical for you to go back and get your renewals. These people are not the ones who are going to be interested in the nitty-gritty part of what went right, what went wrong. They want the bigger picture, right? So as long as things are going well, you can go back and get them to sign the deal. But you need to make sure that the people who signed off on the deal are going to be quite different from the users. And you, you, I mean, making sense out here. It does. They have different expectations. And it's, it's certainly true in the pre-sale process as well, right? That the user buyers are more interested in speeds and feeds and features and functionality. The economic buyer you know, wants to know that the user buyers would be satisfied with that, but the economic buyer ultimately has a, a business objective they're trying to accomplish. And from a sales perspective, it's very important for you to understand who is the person who makes that decision because you need to have it in your system so that if you're ever going to do NPS, you know what kind of questions to ask whom. You don't want to be talking about small things to the person who signs off on the deal because they're looking at the bigger picture. You need to communicate to them how you help them either increase their revenues, increase their efficiencies, decrease the risk exposure that they have, decrease their costs. Whereas for the people who are actually engaged with you on a day-to-day -day basis, you need to start talking about was it easy for them to do business. When they add questions, how quickly did you respond to them? So you're looking at a strategic and a transactional part in measuring with your customers as well. Yeah, and you do also often see that question about easy to do business with. I think there was a bit of a movement at one point that rather than NPS, that's the question to ask. Was it effortless? You're spot on there, Jeremy, where now there are companies that I have a chance to work with where now in the past they would do a relational NPS and the transactional NPS that would go to different members of the customer stakeholder organization. But now what they're saying is that the relational part is, does not really matter. It's about how quickly can we resolve 
the problems that the customers face, uh, that is the people who have issues, right? So, so the transactional NPS becomes a lot more important with the idea that the more we make it ease of use, let's not forget that if I have a structural issue that leads to a lot of customers complaining because your lower NPS is not based on one customer, right? It's based on kind of a group of similar kind of customers, which would mean that you have problems in your processes and it's time for you to go back rather than have a false sense of security with your relational NPS being pretty good. Yeah, you just reminded me of something that I I remember back from business school. One of my professors cited a study that they studied a phone company and they looked at the renewal rates of customers who had problems and then called in and got them solved versus the renewal rates of customers who never had problems to begin with. And the customers who had problems that got resolved renew at much, much higher rates than those who seem to have never had problems. I'll even go one step further, Jeremy. I think it's the same study that we're talking about. Companies that gave the customers a chance to vent their frustration, but did not fix the problem, still had a higher retention rate than companies where there was no problem, but the customer never complained. So even the act of venting alone improves retention rates. These are studies that predate social media because today the customers can actually go out there and take to social media and take you to task. And here is something where I'm going to say things that sounds ridiculous, but I say today your customers are doing two things. I call it the Amazonification of expectations. A normal person on a B2C, when they're going in in their normal life and they want to buy something, they go to Amazon, they have an amazing experience. The same person goes into work and he or she suddenly says, why can't my supplier pull up their act together and do a much better job of delivering according to the expectations? And the other thing is what I call this trip advisory of things. That is, customers today trust other customers who have been in similar situations, even in B2B, rather than talk to the salesperson. I'm not saying that this is something bad, but if I am a marketing and sales person in the supplier organization, I need to start understanding how can I better leverage my NPS, that is those customers who have who are promoters, who are advocates, how can I use their testimonials to better win new customers, thereby reducing my cost of acquisition. On the B2B side, I'm buying things with some frequency, and I can often find multiple vendors that meet the requirements. I then go look in two places. The first place I go look is on G2 Crowd. And then the second thing I do is I basically phone a friend, right? Is that I call a few people who have been there and done that and maybe use these particular vendors in the past. So I'm going to do that way over trusting you know, the advice of the salesperson. I think in the B2C world, the rise of the influencers, I think in a way, has eroded people's trust that if an influencer is promoting a product now, three, four years ago, maybe people thought that that was legitimate, but now everyone knows that that's paid. In the B2B world, I think I've seen this happen where someone posts a question wherever it is, like a review site or a a forum or something like that, and other presumed buyers jump in and endorse one or the other but I've even begun to wonder in that space too whether you know how much of that is legitimate. Fantastic, and I think it's great that you mentioned this because we were working on a topic which is building up on the concept of social selling, but the idea of personal branding, right? And what you see increasingly happening is that I think as this practice, as you correctly pointed out, becomes more prevalent, you will see that some people will stick out, or some organizations might stick out because of the kind of the neutral uh, stance that they take. 
one of the companies that we were talking to or were working with was very interesting. So what they said was they said they're going to take one of their technical person who apparently in this case is a very, very technologically driven organization, but this person was not just a geek, but was a geek who could articulate in normal human beings language. So what this organization said was people perceive us to be very technologically driven and not necessarily customer centric. So why don't we get this person to be kind of the spokesperson for everything that we stand for, but they made it very clear that that person would just not talk about their organization, but would be a generalist. That is, yes, they were on the payroll, but this person would build up the kind of reputation as somebody who's neutral, somebody who could be seen as a trusted advisor in the era of social media. But of course, the key thing is that it's a fine line where you have to draw saying that you are paying the salary of that individual. And that individual is building up the reputation. But at some point in time, if questions start uh, moving along the lines of non-related topics where that person is seen as a kind of an expert, that is pretty much when you have to ask yourself, is that individual worth for us to be spending so much effort on? And at what point does that individual bigger than your own brand? This may not be true for really, really big brands. But for up-and-coming brands, some people who are put up by the organization might have end up becoming bigger than the brand itself. Huh? I'm also just thinking about disclosure as well. I think there was some talk even in the Congress in the U.S. of actually requiring social media influencers in the B2C space to actually disclose their relationships. I think that would be an incredibly valuable thing. I always love to ask my guests at the end to just reflect a little bit on the conversation we've had. We obviously spanned customer experience. We talked about some topics about expanding internationally. We talked a lot about retention and customer success and net promoter score. So as you kind of reflect on our conversation, what are some of the key takeaways that you want the listeners to have? One thing is, of course, is that whether you like it or not, your organization is going to have silos. The key is how do I not get lost in those silos, but how do I try to make sure that I do not lose my end customer and delivering a great customer experience and work your magic so that you can make it happen. The second thing which uh, I really want to kind of harp on is the fact that if you are looking at going international, be aware that any kind of metric like NPS, where it's got to do with customer satisfaction, or is very, very culture specific. So, for example, if you go to France and you ask customers to, on a scale of zero to 10, there's no way you're going to get a nine or a 10. But this does not mean that a customer who gives you an eight is uh, unhappy. It just means that they're just not used to giving tens. So it is not the NPS score itself. It's the evolution of your NPS scores over the years. Trend in the segment is what you need to do. And the third thing, which I cannot stress enough, is the example of the three by three matrix that you said. Customer experience is going to be different per segment of customers, and customer needs are going to be different per type of customer as well. So you need to have a marketing department that develops your value proposition so that it's very segment specific. You need to have your salespeople and your customer success people going customer by customer and develop your unique selling propositions. We didn't talk about it, but I think we sort of hinted on it as well. So these are the three things that I would say you need to keep in mind. Never lose track of the customer. Make sure that when you do measure customer success, you do account for differences in cultures if you're going to go international. The third thing is segment your markets, but also try to make sure that within those segments, not all customers are the same. You need to vary your approach there as well. 
And the last and final thing is if people do want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to locate you? I am on LinkedIn. So our, my email address would be D, that's from my first name, Deva, Rangarajan at bsu.edu. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.